Well, I, you know, I see creativity. I think traditionally, maybe we've always thought of creativity as something that happens in the arts. And, um, but uh, to me, creativity is that um, just crosses every, every discipline in every way of knowing. And it, it's the ability to not only come up with new and novel ideas, but also to take existing ideas and twist them and tweak them and bend them and blend them. Hello and welcome to NCAGT's first ever podcast. We're your host, Hannah Park. And Catherine Caldwell. As educators, we feel it's our responsibility to reach all students that walk through our door. However, we've realized that every year there are children in our classroom that we feel are put on the back burner because we lack the resources, knowledge, and support to provide for them everything that they need and rightfully deserve. Often these learners are eventually referred to as being gifted, but the problem with that is there's no universal definition of what it means to be gifted which leads to a whole lot of confusion and a whole lot of inconsistencies. So knowing that we're not the only educators who feel this way, we've decided to work in tandem with NCAGT to interview entrepreneurs, community leaders, stakeholders, and experts throughout the field of gifted education to uncover the truth about what it truly means to be gifted, spread awareness, and hopefully be an instrument of change. This podcast is for anyone who is seeking to learn more about gifted education, parents, educators, and learners from all walks of life. Our organization is committed to being an instrument of change. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Christy Doss and Lisa Bloom. These two women both teach at Western Carolina University. Christy is an assistant professor in the School of Teaching and Learning, and Lisa is a J. Robinson Distinguished Professor. They both work with undergraduates, those seeking AIG licensure, and teachers enrolled in their Master's of Ed program. Christy has her Master's of Ed in Gifted Education, her PhD in Educational Philosophy, Gifted Education and Instructional Technology, and 22 years of teaching middle school students, 15 years as an AIG specialist. Lisa has 32 years of teaching courses in Gifted Education and Special Education at Western Carolina University. Today's episode was beautiful, and we were so happy to just sit back and listen as these two incredibly intelligent women talked about the correlation between creativity and giftedness. Enjoy. Good morning, ladies. Welcome. Why don't we start by having you guys tell us a little bit about who you are and your working relationship? So Lisa and I um, are buddies from Western. We've known each other now for it's 2008, I think, that we've been together, kind of been together. I've helped mm-hmm. out with the Rocket to Creativity. I came to the program at Western. Lisa was not my professor, but Sharon Dole, her buddy at that time, was my main professor. And so uh, Lisa got stuck with me after Sharon retired. And uh, um, actually, we, we all went to a conference down in Savannah. Sharon got sick and Lisa and I walked that city. I bet we did 45 miles walking, went down to Tybee. And uh, then from there, we started walking at Lake Junaluska. And I was still a middle school teacher working on my PhD. 
So I went down to UGA and got my PhD and then came back. And that was one year that I had to attend in person. So I taught middle school for 22 years, AIG specialist for like 15, and then joined Lisa at Western for the last five years and, um, and Rocket to Creativity before that, which is our camp. But we're just good buddies and uh, we took uh, writing classes together. So Lisa's got a novel that's much further along than mine, but I have a science fiction novel that got, I got about 75, 80 pages into that. So that was another little shared journey. Um, but we conduct a lot of research together and um, we just have a good time. Yeah. 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 I remember when Christy first came to Rocket to Creativity was the first I met her. That That's a program that uh, Sharon Dole and I started together uh, over... 20 years ago. And we started it because of my children. And I wanted something for them as summers that was, you know, uh, something enriching and that would nurture their creativity. And so we started that I used to drag my boys kicking and screaming to school in the mornings. And we, we started rocket to creativity. And all of a sudden, they were mad at me because it didn't last the whole summer. And they were walking up, working on their projects at 11 o'clock at night when it was bedtime. And, you know, meanwhile, homework during the school year was a huge struggle. All, but all of a sudden during the summer, they're wanting to work on projects, you know, well into the night. And I had to make them stop to get in bed. Um, so... But anyway, I remember the year Christy first came to Rocket to Creativity and uh, Dr. Dole kept saying, Christy Wagner, Christy Wagner. She's, <laughs> and I was like, who is this person? <laughs> and here we are, best of friends and colleagues and really enjoy getting excited about similar things, similar yeah. topics. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, we saw in your bio, Lisa, that you're a silver medalist in race walking at international and national senior games. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I, I sure can. So um, this is something that also happened uh, pro actually probably about 25 years ago. I was trying to get in shape and I had a friend and we were trying to do a little bit of running and I was really happy if I could run a mile in 15 minutes, which if you know anything about running is not very good, um, but that was good for me. And I happened upon this elderly gentleman one day at the track. Um, and he said, he started to talk to me. And uh, next thing I knew, we'd keep seeing each other, we'd talk. And the next thing I knew, he was calling me if I didn't show up. And so he started to coach me and he was, uh, he was a former uh, collegiate, collegiate coach and uh, ran our PE department at WCU, but, but had retired. And he started to coach me and we would go to running races, road races, and I would improve, I improved in running, but never really got fast enough to be competitive. And we would, we would go to the senior games and he asked me, or one time we went to West Virginia to qualify for a senior game. And the only reason we picked West Virginia was because I wouldn't have much um, competition and then would qualify for the national games. 
because uh, you had to qualify to go to the national games. So we were in West Virginia and just coincidentally came upon the race walkers. And I said, coach, I said, I think I could do this. <laughs> and he said, well, I don't know anything about race walking, he said, but I don't think the training will be a whole lot different. He said, let's try it. And so it turned out I was a lot better race walker than I was a runner. And he coached me. He was, he died when he was 96. He coached me up until the day he died. And Gosh. yeah, and he went, he himself as an athlete was still setting records at age 92 records for his age group. Yes. In running. What are the, do you have like a certain, like, can you get disqualified? How do you not bust out into a job? You know, like, how do they know? There, there are people around the track uh, at race walks that have paddles and there's yellow paddles and red paddles. And if you get a yellow paddle, it's a warning because you've broken the form. There's, there's uh, criteria. Like you can only, you have to have one foot on the ground at all times and your lead, the knee on your lead foot can't bend until the other foot comes off the ground. And so it's really actually really hard on your hips and, and everything. But if you can maintain the form, you're fine. But if you get a yellow paddle, that's one warning. You get a second yellow paddle, that's your second warning. And then your third, three strikes and you're out. So you get disqualified. I've never been disqualified. But then I was in a bad accident in 2011 and um, broke my ankle and broke some of my vertebrae. And I got out of there, could, couldn't walk for a while. And I, my coach came to my house and he said, you know, we started from scratch before. We'll start from scratch again. And the last race I went to, he couldn't make it because by then he was getting, you know, he was getting pretty frail and I was calling him on the phone, coach, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do it. And you can do it. You can do it. And this was in Utah. So I'm going around that track and by the first lap around, I was just in pain. I was just like, oh, I'm finishing this race and I'm finishing it for coach. And People started to double lap me. And by the time we finished every, I was dead last. Even the 80 year olds were double lapping me. And, but I crossed the finish line and um, my son calls it a a sympathy cheer. You know, the crowd was (laughs) cheering for me. And, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to go home and a friend I was with said, now let's just wait and see, you know, congratulate the winners. And all right, all right, we'll wait. Well, lo and behold, everybody in my age group that had signed up, only one showed up. So that was, so got the um, silver medal that time too, and got to call my coach. It was, you know, our last kind of coaching moment and tell him that I, you know, that I did it, that I got the silver medal. Now I've gotten the silver medal more legitimately than that (laughs) in other races when I did have competition, but that one was pretty special. What a cool experience. 
earlier, Christy, you said you walked with her in Savannah. So do you do some of the competitive walking as well? Um, no, I've never done competitive walking. I was an athlete when I was younger, like basketball, okay. volleyball, track, soccer, swimming. Um, <clears throat> but then, and I love to exercise like every day if I can, can get out there and do it. And so we do Lake Genalesco. We do, it's about six miles that we walk and we do. And Lisa, she's, she's a fast walker. And then we, we, we walk at campus. We'll, you know, do loops around the campus. Lisa's got some different routes that we take. And uh, when we travel, we just get out and, and exercise as much as we can. Um, so it's great to just, it's like a great place to brainstorm ideas. So oh, yeah. we, we just carry our, I think we've been working on this creativity book in different ways, you know, and it probably started at Lake Junalesco walking and talking and, and then uh, mm-hmm. we just talk about issues at, at Western and our plans and our goals and our research, research, research. So, um, yeah, and we our creative writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We just and how to what our characters will do next in our stories and uh, yeah, revision. So I got to get back to that sci-fi book. That yeah, you do, you do. Gosh, awesome. love that, love that. Um, all right, so. Our one of our first questions that we like to ask is what brought you into education, the world of education? What brought you guys here? I'll go first. Um, I, when I graduated high school, I got to become a teaching fellow. And so that teaching fellows program was incredible. And I went to App State and they just provided so much nurturing and guidance. And they were like, you can change the world. You guys are the best and the brightest. And so it was really exciting at that time. It was back in 1995 to graduate with all of these people across the state and network with them and to see kind of like how we've evolved over the last 25 years. So some people are still in education. Uh, some have doctorates, you know, and went on and got their PhDs. Uh, I always think when you think about the teacher who's been in the classroom for 30 years, doing what they do, uh, they need to be celebrated and they don't have to go on to be an administrator or any kind of AIG specialist or coach. Um, And so I still have uh, people from my program who are teaching and doing great work in the classroom. So the teaching fellows was a draw and teaching was also something and with my mom was a teacher. So she encouraged my twin sister and I to do that. And my twin is a a theater teacher here. And um, so some of the kids in the county had my sister as a teacher for elementary. And then they had me all three years, maybe in AIG. And then the, Kelly moved to the high school for drama. And then they had her for all I these couldn't years. get rid of you. I know. <laughs> oh now, now I'm at Western. And so some of them are coming <laughs> through my program at Western now. So they've had a little bit of uh, or maiden name Kowalski, Kowalski twins their whole way. So uh, education is just really important uh, to me. And, and I loved the teaching fellows program. That was, uh, we took trips and did outdoor education and, you know, really pushed each other in that program to do the best we could do. Yeah. Lisa, what about you? Well, so I grew up in the sixties uh, and early seventies and At that time, there wasn't uh, a lot of guidance for people like me. I came, I was, came from a poor uh, single parent family. I was the youngest of seven children. And, um, you know, back in that day, they had college prep class. You either went the business route or the college prep route. And I can't even tell you why I got into college prep. I just don't even know why that happened because 
uh, I didn't get a lot of guidance or encouragement. Um, my mom was encouraging, but, but anyway, so I did that and I uh, graduated from high school, went to the first university that took, you know, that accepted me. I actually only applied to one and that's when I got the acceptance letter, I thought, okay, I, <laughs> I, I didn't know the difference between any of the universities in my state. So I, I went there and got there the, the first week of class and they said, what's your, what's your major? What do you want to declare as your major? And I was dumbfounded. And I had just read Helen Keller and I said, I think I want to work with blind people. And so they, they said, oh, you belong in special education. Well, I had never even heard of special education, but I said, okay. And, and, you know, it was one of those fortuitous moments because it really turned out to be the right, the right thing for me. I often think, you know, sometimes I think, oh, I wish I would have gone into creative writing, uh, but, uh, but I've loved what I've done. And so when, when I was in special education and started teaching, I worked with kids with emotional and behavioral problems. And I recognized then many of my kids were just off the charts smart, they, but they didn't do school well. And I realized then that there was a connection between uh, what we try to get kids to do in school and the mismatch for kids that were gifted. And, and so then when I got to Western and started working with Sharon Dole and we started Rocket to Creativities when I really decided to delve into gifted education and opportunities for those kids that are less than thrilled with the school experience. You're, you're quirky learners. You're, you're quirky twice, learners. Yeah. twice exceptional. I mean, they really benefit from like rocket to creativity, hands-on, student-driven. Um, that, that experience changed my life, going to rocket to creativity and, and learning how to follow a student's lead. And my, the lady working with me, she, I had all my lesson plans set up and uh, she's like, you're not supposed to do that. We're going to follow their lead and uh, let them guide the process. And that mind was blown and it was hard. And I kind of broke a little bit inside and then came out a facilitator. And I was like, oh, this is facilitating. This is real facilitating. You're not pretending like you're listening to the kids. No, you are watching and engaging and figuring out their next step and who's an expert to contact along the way. Um, and there's so much play and curiosity and imagination. Um, so yeah, Lisa, that experience, it's perfect for our, our, our twice exceptional students. Yeah, yeah. And, and even kids that are just misunderstood because there's big overlap between attention deficit disorder, the characteristics of kids who are ADD and kids who are gifted. And I've seen that a lot. So, uh, and then uh, as we kept going, I became really interested in the whole notion of uh, creative and critical thinking and how we nurture that in children and how we kill that in children. Um, so that's been a I just think that right now we have massive uh, wicked problems in 
in the world. Maybe we always have, but it just seems like, you know, political divide, um, economic disparities, climate change. And I just think that those problems need a different kind of brain power than what we're nurturing in schools. And I, I want us to be nurturing the kids that are going to be able to solve those problems for us. And I think tapping into creativity and nurturing that creativity is, is key to. It's just not something that's been focused on and in, in educational, like really harped on in the educational setting. Well, I almost yeah. think like people discouraged creativity, like over the last 25 years, I feel like when I started teaching, we could be creative, but it was still like classroom management. You weren't supposed to smile until Christmas. And so, and then things changed with that and things opened up and we got to be more creative as teachers. And then project-based learning came in. And I remember the first time going to a PD about that and going back to my classroom and flipping my classroom where I had all of these different avenues for kids and choice. And it was like a celebration. So no longer were we trying to memorize the different types of clouds. The kids were doing projects and doing presentations and they were giving me so much information on topics. And I was like, oh, I, I thought I was supposed to be the one who owned all the knowledge in the class. And, and I was like, whoa, project-based learning. I got to be a learner too. And then, um, so we got to be more creative. And then all of a sudden um, that just took a, a sharp downhill turn where they want everyone to teach the same way at the same time or bringing in programs for us to use or pushing through too many standards where you feel like you don't have time to you know, be creative and allow kids to be curious and explore their imagination. And so you gotta get ready for that EOG. It, it is very standard, you know, here's your standards. And even yesterday I was listening to some students talk about uh, models and gifted education and the ICM. And they're like, how do I get all my social studies standards covered and still use this big concept or theme to teach with? And I, it, it was breaking my heart. I was like, social studies is a place that needs a lot of depth and discussion and problem solving. And it should not be a race to, to master these standards along the way. Um, so yeah, with that EOG prep, pressure with that. And I just saw even the, the, the people I team taught with went from wanting to do the creative projects and the real world projects to saying, no, we've got to understand how the theme affects the mood of the story and have the kids pull out the passages and over and over, that's all they wanted to do anymore. Um, and it was heartbreaking because we had like this big, uh, artist units that had researched and talked about personality traits and presentations. And they're like, we don't have time for that anymore. We've got to cover just these things here. Um, so I, I think we've just got to take a turn. We've got to embrace how important creative thinking is, how important creative problem solving is for, for our future, you know? And, and so someone's got to take the lead on that. I want to interrupt because we've been using this word creativity a whole lot. And then that's what we're going to be talking a lot about today. Um, I want to ask how, just for the for this conversation today, how would you define that word creativity and how it's going to be used today? Well, I, you know, I see creativity, I think traditionally, maybe we've always thought of creativity as something that happens in the arts. And, um, but uh, to me, creativity is that um, just crosses every every discipline in every way of knowing and it it's the ability to not only come up with 
new and novel ideas, but also to take existing ideas and twist them and tweak them and bend them and blend them. And, and then uh, to be able to see, put those ideas into action. Um, and then that's where the critical thinking comes in because you know we have to try out those ideas, um, test them, see what works, see what doesn't work. And um, and things like that. Well, I was also going to say, and, and you know, we also talk a lot about big C creativity and little C creativity. And big C creativity is is like the you know the life changing inventions and 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 things like that. The big the big things. And but little C creativity happens every day and in the classroom in our home lives. And that's this just that ability to see a problem in a, in a different, in a different way and to, um, you know, come up with novel, novel solutions. So do you both believe that creativity is something that people are born with, or is it something that can be taught? No, I think we're a huge fan of the idea that you can teach kids to be more creative. So there's certain skills that you can implement into your, your class for like divergent thinking. And so you can work on uh, fluency and flexibility and helping students be original with their answers and helping them elaborate. So those are the four different tenets under the Guilford, Guilford model. And then as we talk about critical thinking, that also goes along with the creative process where you start to evaluate your ideas, you know, select the best one, organize your information and come up with that useful, you know, either final product or maybe in the math classroom, you're solving uh, um, the problem in different ways. How, you know, back in the day, they said everyone should follow the same uh, formula, same technique. Show me what you're, uh, with, you know, get it down on paper. And we know now that there's so many different ways to solve problems, and we should be encouraging kids to take different avenues, but then also to assess, like, did where did you hit a stopping point where you knew you were wrong, and go back and and look at the foundation again. So it's a whole process there. But so you can take these different um, tenets under Guilford and just focus on those individually, like divergent thinking. Um, but you can also embed those into your curriculum and in language arts or math, picking out uh, which tools would help the students best, best in that realm. Uh, so there are just like small activities that you can do, but then you can also set up creative problem solving activities or a problem based learning unit. Um, and then you can work on the skills within those uh, units that you develop and implement. But also like schools can embrace creativity as a philosophy. Um, and then like school, school-wide enrichment model where you have kids doing different things, different events and clubs and activities. That's another way of thinking about how creativity can be you know, taught to students and they can explore that realm and understand the skills. I love that because it makes me think of how I remember so many times throughout my life, people saying, well, I'm just not a creative person or they'll, they'll be, they believe you either have it or you don't. And I think that's so encouraging and because so many people think that, and I think so many kids need to hear that, that, okay, so maybe you didn't think about it this time, but like knowing that there's that possibility of being taught different ways to do things and then taking that and taking it off on your own, like in thinking of things in different ways on your own. So I just think that's, it's just nice to hear. Catherine, yeah. we did a, a, I just want to give one example with that real quick. I, we did a, 
a divergent thinking activity with um, uh, a murder mystery story. And we did every day we did a different object that was going to be in the novel. And we came up with like creative uses for this. Like, you know, what, what, what could this brick do? And the first day I remember my students, they were like, it's just a brick, right? Like, or maybe you could. And then by the 10th the day of doing these activities, they were coming up with 60 different ideas for what the, the, you know, a brick could do. And they were, and it was so interesting to think about who was being really original and uh, coming up with the really unique ideas. They absolutely loved it. So I learned that during um, uh, Rocket to Creativity as well about that kind of thinking, thinking skills. Hmm. Yeah. I, I was going to say there, there's science behind that too, that, that you can actually become more creative. Uh, I'm, I met this fellow from Japan um, and he was, he, he does what's called an idea marathon and he's been studying in that for years. And the idea behind an idea marathon is that you keep a journal and come up with a new idea every day. For 30 days and it could be an idea related to anything it, art writing science engineering whatever um and you're supposed to write it down tell it to somebody draw it if that's appropriate um and he's uh used the uh uh torrent's test of creativity to to actually show that people's uh, creative abilities increase after that 30 days by, by as much as 18%. There's also uh, some folks, I went to a conference that was all about the research on creativity a, a few years ago. And there are there have been a lot of folks that have looked at things like our Rocket to Creativity experience to see if people's strategies for creative thinking are actually effective. And they found that they were. Um, and they used all kinds of me measures, tests of creativity, as well as looking, doing brain scans and things like that. Um, so, so it is promising. The bad is there are also researchers that suggest that creativity is on the decline in the United States. And we used to be considered a place to go for creativity, but our uh, creativity scores, according to this researcher named Kim, have, have been on a serious decline for the last 15 or 20 years. But SAT scores are going up. So our kids are get, getting better at test taking. I see that in my, I see that in my undergrads. I feel like they, they're really good at following very concrete steps and directions. And that's because that's what we're having to teach in schools. Is exactly, how to get exactly. And so then that's what we see in college, but they're uncomfortable when you ask them, when you give them something open-ended mm -hmm. and, you know, I just don't know what you want, Dr. Bloom. I, and, uh, yeah. And Lisa, I think that ties in when we've been looking at when young kids being very playful and their scores being really high, really, mm -hmm. really creative. And then how that will take a downhill turn through adolescence. And they say maybe because they're trying to fit in with others. So we lose um, maybe because of context or um, motivation or wanting to be part of the group and not not be unique. So we're, we're looking at creativity in, on the college level as well by bringing creative activities into our 
undergrad and graduate classes and trying to reawaken that creativity for people um, because it's so important. So a huge piece of um, getting students to learn and be on board at any level, whether it's kindergarten or in undergrad classes, is having that buy-in. How do you convince your students that creativity is important? So on the like a college level, because I work with people in gifted studies, creativity is, is very important to them already. So those people will um, automatically engage because they want their students to um, have these skills. And then bringing it out to the um, other students, like working with um, different populations. Right now, I'm still in like the experimental stage of having them do these activities and then wanting to know, was it effective for you? Was thinking in metaphors and, and creating these um, connections effective for your overall understanding of the topic? Or you know, using doodling, daily doodling, or thinking of music and poetry to help you out with this topic, or using a problem solving technique like scamper uh, to try to solve a, a racial diversity issue. Um, you know, was that helpful for you? Um, so that's where I'm at with using those different realms of creativity and understanding like, did it influence their um, complete understanding of the topic and engagement with the topic? Yeah, and, and so, and I found in my undergraduate class that, um, as long as they're not going to be graded, they're happy to dive in. Um, but if they think that there's a score involved, then then it's, okay, tell me what to do and exactly how to do it. Um, uh, and it's interesting because they do, they are hearing from other professors and that, that, you know, that failure is opportunity to learn, you know, mistakes are okay and things like that. Um, so they're all about, since I'm teaching future teachers, they're all about conveying that to their, to their students, but they haven't internalized that message for themselves. They don't want to fail. They don't want a low score. They, you know, they want everything to be rated, uh, top points and things like that. So if I, if I'm not scoring those activities, they're, they're fun. So they get into it. But if they know a grade is going to be attached, then it's then it's it's been more difficult to motivate them. But with younger kids, I feel like um, you get the buy-in from the get-go because they they are engaging, hands-on, fun, chat, the right kind of challenging activity that kids love. Um, Especially if they have some choice in the topic as well. Like for our, our Rocket to Creativity, we have all of these different groups, uh, archeology span and uh, like crime scene investigation and uh, usually something with arts and drama and robotics. And so, I mean, they just jump in right away. They can't wait. Um, and then the whole week is just one activity after another. And I mean, rarely will you, you have a student who doesn't want to create these final products that they end up creating. Yeah, they, yeah, we give them an interest or interest inventory before they come. So they have, uh, you know, several different areas to choose from even before they come. And then when they, when they get there, then they're the ones that decide within that theme that they've picked, they've chosen, uh, they pick what they're actually going to do with that for the week. And we've had, we've had kids, uh, 
make cover crafts that actually went on, you know, went off the ground. We had um, one of my all-time favorites is we had a group that was um, uh, interested in whether or not dragons were were real and if they ever existed. And so their question was, did did dragons ever exist? And if not, why are they such an icon across culture? And uh, those kids ended up talking to, they had just discovered the Dragonius Hogwartius, which was a dinosaur. And it was a new dinosaur and they named it Dragonius Hogwartius. The, the archeologist that discovered it had a sense of humor because he thought it did look a little bit like a, like a dragon. And um, he, he ended up um, coming to a conference call with those kids and they had all their questions planned out ahead of time. And uh, one, and they were just little kids too. And one of my favorite questions was, uh, did you did you find burn marks around his nostrils? And uh, so he convinced the kids that it, no, it was a dinosaur, not a dragon. But when he ended by saying, don't ever stop believing in dragons. <laughs> So. that's so that's amazing I love that you were able to get him to come in and I'm mm -hmm. honestly sitting here thinking I'm not gonna lie I love Game of Thrones and the House of Dragons TV shows and I've wondered like could this have you know been <laughs> right 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 so, yeah he really encouraged them to awesome. keep that imagination and uh, so that was that was fun I want to say you, you can definitely pull this into your classrooms by using the same process. I used to do like a hypothetical grant unit, $100,000, and it was like month long, but it was about persuasive uh, writing and building a website and interviewing experts and research and, and putting like hitting your standards all, along the way. But the students have choice about what kind of problem they want to solve. And they're doing the same thing that Lisa talked about with her boys, working until 11 o'clock at night, trying to figure out how to solve a problem. Um, but you're also getting your standards in there as well and just being super excited about it, um, but making sure that you're getting uh, what you need to get in at the grade level that you're teaching. Uh, I love the idea too. Earlier, you mentioned the idea marathon and I was just thinking that that could even be something that teachers incorporate into a regular classroom setting with their morning meetings. You know, you set aside a few minutes a day to, all right, everybody get out your idea journal and Let's get, you know, and do that for 30 days. And that would be so Absolutely. amazing to see Absolutely. and do one as a whole group and then have them go off on their own like that. I mean, that could be something simple that you could implement into your regular classroom setting. That could Don't worry, I wrote it down. Yeah. <laughs> you could, you could oh, use that for a shark tank, like launch into a unit um, on persuasive writing and have kids create inventions and build and grow and also do writing along the way. So you're supporting the invention that you're creating and presentation skills too. We did that for three or four years. I did that when I taught third grade, we did a shark tank um, a problem-based learning project. And it was amazing. And the coolest thing was, is you saw your kids that were your English language learners, your behavior students. They were the ones who you saw excelling. And it was so beautiful to see them doing so well in an educational environment because they've never had that opportunity to be highlighted before, you know, and they 
once you kind of took away these constraints and just let them go, they loved it. They researched a city, identified a problem, and then they had to come up with an invention or innovation to solve that problem. And then we would have um, panels of sharks come in and they would have to pitch their ideas. And it was so cool. We loved it every year. Um, earlier, Lisa, you mentioned that one of the surefire ways to kind of cut the cord of creativity is to put on expected evaluations. Mm -hmm. And that just made me think I was doing research before. And I just think it's good to note that, um, and let's see if you guys agree, but I found some research that said five environmental constraints that destroy internal motivation and creativity are expected rewards, expected evaluations, competition, surveillance, and time limits. And I, I personally was like, oh my gosh, I can't think of how many times like in my classrooms I've done competitions and kind of reflecting on, man, was I, was I taking away from kids when I did that, you know? So it kind of just made me reflect a little bit. You know, I, I Christy and I argue a little bit about that, but, but I, I, I agree absolutely with every one of those things. And I think that, um, uh, some people, for for some individuals, competition and expected rewards, working for some kind of big prize or something like that, puts that puts pressure on on the students so that you know it kind of freezes rather than um, you know freeze their 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 mind and their thinking because all of a sudden there's high stakes involved. And I think that, you know, Daniel Pink talks about that. Uh, there's a little video that I showed in my cl class about the use of rewards. And, um, you know, according to him, that's been studied with adults all, all over the world. And uh, the higher the reward, the actually less productive people are and the less ideas they come up with. Um, and that those external rewards really only work for things that involve mechanical skills, but not um, uh, creative and critical thinking. They're, they actually deter creative and critical thinking. And what, what um, as far as adults go, what works the best if you, is if you take money off the table. If you pay workers enough, then um, they will be productive and creative. Um, but when you don't pay them enough, and which is why we need to pay teachers more, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, so when you take that issue off the table, then that really is, is freeing. Um, we do argue a little bit about it, uh, just because like Shark Tank involves a little bit of competition because you're going against your yeah, um, other absolutely. people. So for the Shark Tank, you know, but I think like playful competition. Yeah. Um, but then I also think about uh, my twin is headed to the state um, competition for a play right now. And people come from all these high schools they, and they compete against each other. And this is, you know, performance. It is, it is creativity all day for these people. And you know, so she made it to the next level. And so now they're, they're getting ready for that. And it is high stakes. And it is about just only two people out of 16 um, schools, you know, being able to pass on. And Kelly does feel that every year, like, I don't know if I want to do this again. It takes away some of the joy. However, the final products are so good. And, and, and she brings in all these resources. And so 
I don't know, the competition thing, I don't like for it to be detrimental, but if it can be encouraging, if the, you know, to help with motivation, yeah. you know, but, but well, I just don't I, want I, losers. Yeah, I think it's like all things in life. It boils down to, to balance because I do think that competition is so important because you have to teach kids how to lose. You have to teach kids how to lose. Um, and so I think it's all just about balance. And in your classrooms, you just have to try and make sure that you're remembering what your key goal is within lessons. And if your key motivation for teaching that lesson isn't teaching how to be a good winner and a good loser, then you should think about the amount of, you know, what, what you're putting into the competition. Yeah. But, you know, audience is a good, is a good motivator too. having mm-hmm. a real mm-hmm. authentic audience. Um, you know, so for some people, it's not just about winning the competition, but, but about actually having somebody um, view and appreciate th- their work. And when, so when it's an audience outside the, you know, the classroom or the, just the teacher, um, you know, I know for me as a, as a creative writer and wanting to get my novel published, it's not because I want to, you know, when, you know, the Nobel Prize or the Pulitzer Prize or anything, I, I want, I want people to read what I wrote. And, you know, and I, I don't even care about making money for, from it. I just, I just want to know that somebody read it. And so I think that's, that's true for kids too. When they, when they know that somebody's going to appreciate what they did, that's the, um, and, and, and see it and comment on it. Makes it matter, makes all of your hard work worth something rather than just a mark. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So our next question is, what did you find in your research about using models and instructions during the creative process? Sure. Um, That was a that was a question that was really intriguing to us. you know, my kids grew up playing with Legos and they always, you know, use, follow the instructions first, but then uh, after they build it, they tore that all apart and we never saw that, that design again. And they really use the, the, the Legos in creative ways. Um, so I've always been of the mindset that providing kids models and direct instruction for what we want them to create or or do inhibits creativity that was my my thinking on that so we we wanted to put that to the test and what we did was we had three different creativity challenges for kids and we had uh two groups and so they either got the challenge with just here, create this, uh, or, or create not this specific thing, but um, like one was to create a Rube Goldberg machine that had three steps to it. And so one group got uh, a model of a working Rube Goldberg machine and instructions on about how it was built. And the other group just got, here's what a Rube Goldberg machine is, and showed some uh, some examples, but we didn't show any examples using the materials we had. And then we said, you know, here, make a Rube Goldberg machine. Um, so uh, what we found was that uh, the kids that 
used that had the models and instructions didn't necessarily copy the the model but they used pieces of the model and they ended up with more successful machines than the students that didn't have the model now you know there was a time constraint so perhaps the kids that didn't have the model would would have with more time would have come up with a, a more functional machines um but we we didn't really see a difference in creativity between those two groups um uh for our uh for the for two challenges and those were challenges which were building something that would work one was the rube goldberg and one was a grabber machine our third challenge um we just had some materials and we told them uh to make something and uh for the group that had the model they had a, a little car made out of a, a toilet paper tube and the other group of course had nothing so in that group they definitely had more ideas uh the group with the model went more towards transportation types of things um so uh um and as we you know uh, thought about that. Um, there's a book by Branton Engelman where they talk about there really are no new ideas out there, or there are very few new ideas. That our ideas really come from existing ideas that we break, blend, and bend. And so in our study, that's what the kids were doing. They were breaking, blending, and bending the ideas uh, from the models that we showed them. That's so interesting. I mean, it makes me, I, I think it's so important when I'm teaching, I always try and have models before I send kids off to go do something independently. And so, I don't know, that makes me feel good that you found that kids that did have that model, it's not like you're necessarily telling them what to go and do, but giving them a, a place to put their brain on the start line. I feel like they get to that start line a little bit quicker. Right, um, exactly. Yeah. And so that study actually changed my thinking about that because I was all opposed to models. Oh, really? Yeah, I was. And I thought, okay, as long as we're emphasizing that yours does not need to be like the model, yours and, and emphasizing that word creativity. I think that's an important word, you know, to uh to talk about with kids so that they feel safe in uh venturing from the model. Interesting. So in your research, what about creative mindsets in a makerspace setting? So with that one, uh, Lisa and I have been talking a lot about feedback and who wants feedback and how do you get feedback and um, what do you do with that information? And we'd met with a group of engineers. So we designed um, a project where each student group of students got the same materials and they were told to create something that they could market to their friends or family and they had four days. And at the end of each day, we would walk around and we'd ask the students, um, would you like to have a, a score on how, we, how well we think this is designed at this point? And would you like to receive feedback? And so we monitored the kids about for who wanted to get the score and who wanted to get feedback. And what we came up with was seven different profiles from some students who did not want a score or any kind of feedback all week long and actually 
one of them told me that it felt like nagging, that I was nagging her, <laughs> you know, if I could leave her alone. And then about 56% were very flexible. They wanted the feedback, they wanted the score, and they used it every day in a really playful way. There was no like negativity or um, maybe that the first day, maybe a little disappointment that they, it wasn't as high of a score as they thought they might get, um, but lots of flexibility with that group. And, um, but then we also had the rule breakers who, first of all, didn't, they completed the project, but they wouldn't use like the materials in the room. So someone who wanted to make this homemade crazy uh, ice cream flavors, <laughs> and she was really fun to work with every day, but she would not do the process with us at all. Um, and an interesting group of um, students who were early bailers, who maybe uh, were, they were working really hard on day one, day two, day three, and then their product wasn't meeting up to expectations. And so they completely just trashed everything and wouldn't let their group members work on the product either. Um, and then uh, we had uh, a small group of maybe perfectionists who once they heard that we were given feedback, uh, they were excessive with it throughout the makerspace time every day. Does this look like I, I did this right? What do you think I should do next? And so they they just didn't have that um, independent nature to keep going with their with their thoughts. And then a couple who just really struggled with the idea of being creative. And I think it was more of self-esteem that we were looking at there. Um, so we were looking at growth mindset and we had uh, the teachers score the kids in, in their space and we scored them in our space. And those two scores aligned, but then we also had them take self-assessments about growth mindset, two of them, and those did not correlate with behaviors that we saw in the, so sometimes students, and maybe they know what they're supposed to say on those self-assessments, um, like they're supposed to be flexible, but then they don't actually display that flexibility um, in an actual creative makerspace setting. So those profiles are interesting to think about, like as you watch your students being creative, where might they be struggling? Uh, or how can you help them in a way that could make them become more successful in the future? Um, and then some with the independent, uh, the, it's just fun to see, I think sometimes kids who are like, I'm doing it my way. And uh, I, I think we need to honor those kids and we don't do enough of that in our classes. Yeah. Wow, that's so fascinating. Cause it has me sitting here thinking about myself. Like if I was in that situation, cause I'd be wanting to be like, am I doing it right? Like, is this going to be what they want? Like, that's just how I would be thinking about it in that situation. And Hannah, I feel like you'd be doing it differently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. And, and Christy, they're, they're, the, the kids ratings of themselves didn't match with the, their, the, their behaviors or the teacher's ratings. Right. Right. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so that may be more about we we're also looking at those assessments for growth mindset and how they might correlate to creativity. Um, so having wording that was more about creativity, because that's our that was our main angle with the growth mindset. Uh, so using words like, do you feel like you are creative instead of um, intelligent? So word choice in some of those surveys could be altered to better understand the creative process for kids. How did you get this group of children? Did you push into a local school? How it's old were they? It's our Rocket to Creativity. They, they, it was the kids that came to Rocket to Creativity. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, if you all know any teachers or kids that are interested, uh, this is the first year since the pandemic that we're uh, having kids back to rocket to creativity. We've been we've been still doing it with teach just with teachers the last couple of years, but um, 
uh, we're bringing kids back and we're excited about that this summer. We usually have about 75 kids and yeah. our teachers who are getting certification, but you can also um, come and attend as, for CEU credits. And so it is a fun week and we, um, we provide uh, mentoring and bring in speakers and time for teachers to go out together. And then they're working with the kids and we just try to make it a really uh, fun, fun-filled week. Oh, I love that. Just fully immersive. Yeah, yeah. We've talked a lot about buying gifted learners and, and it's hard. It's difficult. There are so many different ways. Can you use creativity as a measure to identify students? Um, you can use creativity. Uh, Georgia has that built into the entire state model for identifying students. So there are tests that you can give, like the Torrance test that we talked about earlier, but we also have one called the PCA that we have purchased for the Catamount uh, School. That's our, our, our school that's associated with the university. And, but you can also use self-assessments or portfolio or uh, parent um, perspective or teacher perspective. And so what that would include would be uh, like one of numerous different components that uh, a student could qualify for services. So if we look at grades, um, care, uh, characteristics, we look at um, EOG type testing or some kind of testing, we look at creativity, we look at motivation. So if we had five different avenues to choose from and the student needs to qualify in three out of those five, then creativity definitely is a measure. Um, and where you need to think about is once you identify using this measure, how are you serving that student? Um, how are they receiving services? So that's where people get stuck. It's like, I'm only doing language arts or math. And I, I think we should be doing science and social studies and that there should yes. be rigor across the curriculum. So let's say uh, you, you do get this create, creative measure here and you have high science scores and science motivation. That's where you should be getting your services. Um, and so, or, you know, we need to look back at other models that we used in the past where students can be nurtured in um, exploratory classes, like the, like music. If kids can compose a, a song, why are they not receiving some kind of special services? Uh, and why are they just grouped together and served in the same way? Yeah, yeah. And I would like to add to that. I think that what, one of the things that we know is that high intelligence and high creativity don't necessarily go hand in hand. And so, you know, I think that uh, back to those big world problems that I want somebody to solve. Um, I think that we need to be recognizing the highly creative students as well as the highly intelligent students. And we need to really be, be supporting them and nurturing that, uh, that innovative mind that is going to really solve problems. So. And Lisa, that's a great way for um, like AIG specialists to push in to mm -hmm. the younger classes and to model this creative problem solving for those teachers or to co-teach with those teachers and um, help them think about the importance of um, meeting the needs of different kids and teaching mm -hmm. creative problem solving and creativity. And because I think about your twice exceptional student who just has that executive, executive functioning issues and is not what people think of as a gifted student because people have wrong stereotypes about gifted students. And so by teaching this creative problem solving and getting in there, uh, you can help that student 
um, be successful and reach their full potential. Um, how can, like, say if our listeners have questions or things that they just would re- like to continue to speak with you about, how can they best get in contact with both of you? Um, well, our emails are fairly easy. Mine is Bloom and uh, Christie's is KK Doss. And then you just add at wcu.edu to either of those. And um, we would, yeah, we would love to hear from folks. Um, we're interested in talking to anybody that's interested in creativity or, or uh, has ideas to share with us or would like to hear some of our ideas. Um, yeah, yes. and especially any school districts that might want to come to camp, uh, bring some teachers up there um, and stay in the mountains. We'd love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And the last thing we want to talk about is the divide that the term giftedness can cause. Sometimes this term can lead to misconceptions and even prevent students from being identified because they don't check these preconceived boxes. So do you agree that the term gifted is problematic? And if so, what would you rename it? That's an interesting question. I just had um, a couple of students who um, in the master's program who wrote a, uh, an article about what other people think of when they hear the word gifted. And mm-hmm. they're calling out all these stereotypes and uh, troubling ideas that, that um, shouldn't be out there, such as like, oh, it's your gifted group. They're finishing first. And then we're like, oh, well, then what is this other group here? And do you really understand all the characteristics that go into Um, someone who's got high achieving potential and talent. Um, And so I think we're just going to have to be, you know, really purposeful in letting people know that it's not the student with their hand raised all the time in the front row who should be identified for gifted programs. So we've got to move through um, that kind of those stereotypes and teach our teachers um, what, uh, you know, what it's like to have potential and also have maybe a learning disability or autism or ADHD um, or another issue. And as far as a term, uh, like a different term for gifted, um, I don't know, Lisa, do you, can you think of one? Well, I, you know, I'd like to have like a couple of weeks to think on that, but my, my first thought is that I, I really think we just need to expand it to include creative, um, gifted and creative, gifted, talented and creative. Um, uh, I think that uh, it's absolutely important to nurture those really high achievers with, um, uh, with, with high intellectual abilities. Uh, But again, I think we also need to nurture kids who may not have had the opportunity to develop their intellectual capacity and nurture uh, kids that have promise for creativity as well. So I just think we need to maybe broaden the concept a little bit. So I like the word promise somewhere in there, the, the, the idea of promise, promise and potential. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's the, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> 